Last time we were getting through kind of the halfway point in Matthew chapter 24. We had broken down the third kind of installment of 15 verses. It just seems to be that the theme runs 15, 15, and 15. So uh, here we are again coming up to it. Um, we had gotten through verses 29 down through 35. Just don't do math on me for that one. You know that's not 15. But we had gotten through those sections of Scripture and we had talked about the tribulation, the calamity that Christ is describing with um, this last day, this end time moment. We uh, talked about that unique phrase that the sun would go dark, the moon would go dark or turn red or turn to blood or quit giving its light and that the stars would either fall or they would quit giving their light. And we kind of traced back going all the way back to Isaiah and other kind of doomsday prophecies to the children of Israel that that same phrase was used. And we talked about how it ties from ancient times with the Babylonian, the Assyrian captivities and destruction of Jerusalem up to the times of the prophets of Micah and Hosea and Malachi. In then fast forwarding, it ties as Peter kind of draws out for us in Acts chapter 2. You know, he makes the point that the prophecy of the prophet Joel which said, in the last days, or in that, those days, I will pour out my spirit upon your men and your women, your manservants and your women servants, um, and I will pour out my spirit on them. I will show signs and wonders. They will speak tongues. They will do marvelous things. They will prophesy. Um, and, and again, we noted, and something that maybe we'll be able to get into a little bit later, but notice that God didn't just say he poured it out on his men, okay? Um, that within the holy body of the church that you saw in the first kind of picture of the New Testament church in Acts, you saw both men and women um, who were blessed with spiritual gifts of prophecy and things like that. Um, that's even going on in, in Corinthian church. That's why Paul writes a letter about it and how to keep it all in order. But it's there. And so he says, this is a prophecy that is being fulfilled right before your eyes, that I'm pouring out my spirit and that your men and your women are going to be used by God to be glorifying to him through prophecy and revelation and things like that. But also tied with that, he says, I will also do some miraculous things. I will show signs. The sun will go dark. The moon will go dark. The stars will fall. You know, all these things. And he ties it to the time of when Jesus was crucified, okay, as a kind of proximal interpretation for them, okay? He's talking to a congregation that's gathered of Jews at Pentecost in Jerusalem, and he says, hey, you remember how when Jesus was crucified, by the way, y'all killed him, remember when you did that, and you remember how the earth had an earthquake, and it rent open, and the veil of the temple was torn, and the sun went dark, and all these things? He said, that was the prophet Joel. He already told you about all this stuff, and you see it happened. Boom, there you go, prophecy fulfilled, you know, and he's Tying that together. Then he says, what you're seeing here, these people speaking in tongues, that's also what Joel was talking about. Okay, So he kind of brings it to a 33, 34 AD period. Okay, But Jesus here is also talking about a distal interpretation. He's talking about something that is yet to come. All right, Another period where there will be great times of tribulation, great signs in the heavens, great earthquakes and earthly things going on, 
And at this sentinel moment, there will come a time when the sun will go dark, the moon will go dark, the stars will go dark. And that is another kind of telling for you that this is the time of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, when he will come back in judgment of the earth, set everything straight, remake the earth, new heavens, new earth kind of deal. And he will fix everything that has been broken going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So that's also, he's kind of saying, all these other ones are just little sneak peeks, okay? They're like the 12 hours of previews you have to go through before you see a new movie these days, okay? Um, it's all these little times where it's, yeah, another movie, and you go, okay, maybe this is it. And then the big green screen pops up again, and you go, okay, maybe this is the movie. Nope, here we go, another one. And then you get and watch that, and the big green screen comes back, and you go, oh, no, here we go, another one. And you just keep going and going, and the movie starts at 7.30. You don't actually get to see the movie till 8.30. Um, and then, you know, that's just how that goes. All these are kind of little previews, okay? Babylonian captivity, destruction of Jerusalem, crucifixion of Christ, destruction of Jerusalem again in AD 70, and ultimately destruction and remaking of the entire heaven and earth into the world, okay? So he says all these are little things pointing towards those times, and when you see them, understand and know what is about to happen, Okay? And in the closing of those sections of scripture, he gives the two verses in 34 and 35 that we hit on as we were closing out last week, which was, Verily I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And what we really were drawing out from those two verses as we were closing out last week was this. That number one, the enigmatic phrase that this generation shall not pass away till all these things come to pass is one of those phrases that everybody debates about in the scriptures and has for generations about what and who is he talking about, okay? And there's a first kind of interpretation, which is, okay, he's saying that everyone present at this point when he is writing or when he is speaking this, okay, this generation shall not pass away till all these things come into effect. Well, the problem is, is that you have some of these things that most certainly were going to happen, especially the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But the other things he's talking about sound way too much like into the world stuff. And we know that the world is still going because we are still here, correct? Okay. So if it was done with, then I don't know what we're in here, some kind of weird matrix alternate reality. But if this is not the case, then that wasn't fulfilled then, and therefore this generation has to mean something else. And so there's a phrase, too, or the thought, too, that the phrase this generation just means the idea of an age. Okay, And we talked about that, how the last days are mentioned multiple times in the epistles. They're, mis they're mentioned in 80-30 and 80-40. They're also mentioned by John in 80-90. So you have like all of these times where it says the last days, the last days, the last days. Well, obviously we know that we are still here and the last days have not stopped yet. They haven't come to the last day, game over, all right? So the idea is that just like that phrase last days is speaking to every day since Jesus has left and ultimately will come back, those are all the last days, okay? Right. Um, that's just how it works. You know, every day past the day is the last days, okay? So we're coming up to that point with the last days for God and the last days for us. Our timing is different. Okay, just works differently. So we still say we're in the last days, even though it's been 2,000 years, which is some odd amount of days since this has been even started. Okay, so that phrase can still be used in that way, and it's not erroneous or incorrect. We're still in the last days, even though it's been two years worth of the last days. Okay, I mean, 2,000 years worth of the last days. 
Also, there's this idea that the age that he's speaking of, this generation, can be every generation, okay, the generation, the age, the time span from Jesus' depart to Jesus' return. That whole group of people from then till now is that generation, the generation of the last days. And then there's my kind of theology or theory or what I have adopted from others and what I believe it is speaking of is this, that the generation that this is written to in AD 70 who are present will most certainly see this come to pass. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Okay, Our generation, the next generation, whichever generation is present when the Lord returns, these things are applicable to. Okay, Obviously, if he returns in our generation, then we'll see these signs, we'll see these things happen, and it's a warning and a kind of advice to us, hey, take notice. So it is our generation, and our generation, if it happened, would see all these things come to pass before the end of the world. Okay, so I kind of believe in a kind of amalgam situation here where there is a generation that this was given to that it applied to and there's a generation that this will be given to that it does apply to whenever that generation comes to pass. Okay, so the last phrase though that he uses, he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Away, And this is what we closed with last week. And the reason I want to bring it back up is because it's such an important statement. Okay? It is such an important statement. And what we did last week, which I probably was a little harsh with it, and I can't guarantee that I won't be as harsh this week. But what I was trying to get at last week and make sure everybody understood is this is not talking about the KJV Bible. Okay? This is not speaking to that God has preserved his Bible throughout all of time. And here we go. He says his words will not pass away. And here you go. You got your KJV Bible. And that's what that means. Because number one, practically, and just, just you know, working it out in your brain. When this world is burnt to a crisp, all the KJV Bibles aren't going to levitate up to heaven. Okay? It's just not going to happen. So everything's going to be destroyed. Well, he says here that his words won't be destroyed. They'll supersede and exist beyond the mortal creation. Well, that's going to create a problem. Either we're going to be riding up on our Bibles or this is not talking about that. Okay. The other point is that God obviously before, as we saw in previous verses, said, I will have my gospel of the kingdom as a witness to all nations till the end of time. I know that it is hard for us to believe, but do you know that the whole entire world does not speak KJV English? They don't even speak English English, let alone KJV English, okay? So it's not speaking of that. The gospel cannot be a witness in a place that doesn't speak the language, okay? And God didn't say, oh, by the way, this witness is only going to come about in the 1600s and then everybody's going to have to learn English or this witness is not going to exist. That's just not the case, okay? It's not talking about that. This is not what it is addressing in this verse. And the reason I'm harsh about it is because we don't need to idolize a Bible and use verses to do that, okay? This verse is not speaking of that. This verse is actually speaking about something much, much more important, okay? If this verse is only talking about a version of the Bible, then this is way, way less than the importance that Christ is giving it. 
What Christ is saying in this verse is that my words, my prophecies, my decrees, my commandments will never pass away. The entire earth and heaven itself can be completely and irrevocably destroyed. I still exist and my words and my promises still exist. You know why that's good? Because, and, I, and I'm not, this is not negative, negatively looking at it, but let's just say climate change got out of hand and the entire world went up in smoke. Guess what doesn't die? His word. Let's say that an asteroid comes and hits and destroys us all. Guess what doesn't go away? His word. His promises. Now, I don't know how he can make all things new out of those kind of cataclysmic things, and we can try to reason that out, but all I know is what Jesus promised will stand even when the world is on fire. Okay? So what he's saying here has dramatically more importance, eternal, external, you know, extra, uh, outside of time and world and everything kind of implications. And he's saying, my promises are steadfast. They will not go away. Every book in this world can be burned up. And guess what? My word will still be in effect it will not change. You can have every nation, as he describes here, go at war against every nation. You can have a nuclear holocaust. You can have whatever you want. And guess what? The promises, the decrees, and the assurances of God are still active and in effect. Okay? So that's what he's getting at with this verse. Doesn't that have a little bit more impact? Isn't that a little bit more important? Isn't that a little bit more assuring to us about the things that we're going to face? To know every single promise he made to us is in effect, is, in, is active, and cannot be revoked. Which means if you go all the way back to where we started this, when he said, hey, guess what? I take care of my birds in creation. Don't you think I'll take care of you? Didn't I make you better than the birds? Didn't I make you greater? Aren't you more unique? Didn't I make you in my image? I didn't make the hogs in my image. I made you in my image. And when I said I take care of the birds and the hogs, don't you think I've got a little bit more care, a little bit more affection, a little bit more worth in you? And don't you think I will take care of you? Yes and amen. And you know what we can do? We can take that to the bank. Why? Because he said, my words are never going to pass away and it's not going to go anywhere. He says, I am sure and steadfast. My decrees are sure and steadfast. My promises are sure and steadfast. There's nothing, no geopolitical power, ecological power, cosmic universal power that can stop, overturn, or overrule the mighty words of God. So he says, take it to the bank. When I say these things are going to come to pass, trust me, they're going to come to pass. You want to know why? Because I told you. And what, and what kind of lasting effect do my words have? Well, right now they're going on 2,000 plus years. Still the same effect. Still the same power. Still the same worth. Still the same trust. So he says, don't be worried about the changing times and the political tides and all these things. He says, all these things are going to ebb and flow and ultimately be completely wiped out. But you know what won't be wiped out? My word. It'll still be here. It'll still be in effect. Everything that I've said, everything that I've decreed, everything that I've promised will still be in effect. So then he goes on and he says, but, and this is verse 36, of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 
For as in the days that were before the, I'm sorry, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the, in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew not till the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what the hour of the Lord, or you know not when the hour of the Lord is. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch or what time the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be you also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom, is, whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give him meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the Lord finds working when he comes. Verily I shall say to you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he's not looking for him, and in an hour when he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint his portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me just tell you what, that phrase comes up so often when Jesus is preaching, and it always cracks me up, okay? There are so many people that he has relegated to the, to the section of there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase is just so picturesque of everything that he is describing, and you see it in your children all the time, okay? All you got to do is tell them one thing and say you got to do this, and you can just visibly see the weeping and the gnashing of teeth that happens. I mean, all you, you need to have kids or be around kids long enough so you can understand what that phrase is talking about, all right? Because it happens all the time. But here, what is Jesus describing? He's giving us a timing, okay? He's giving us a timing to everything. He's telling us to be prepared, be watchful, and be waiting, Okay? Be prepared, be watchful, be waiting. All right? Now, he describes it and says, look at what happened in Noah's day. And we all remember the story of Noah, right? Big flood, big boat. Only eight people survived. Everybody else died. A couple of good animals. You know, all these things. We know the story. All right? What he describes here for us, though, is the suddenness that it came on some people. Okay? And by some people, I mean the entire population of the earth at that time. Okay? Here's the miraculous and amazing thing about this story that you get from this section, okay? How long did it take for Noah to prepare the ark? You'll get a thousand Bible points if you get this. Long time. <laughs> Long time, okay? Okay, all y'all are getting stars in your crown. You get an extra mansion, all that stuff. So, long time that it took to prepare the ark. This was not like... Got it prepared in a day, everybody got in it in a week, boom, we're done, and now, oh man, that was quick. This is years and years and years of preparation. So when God is describing this, he says, it came on them suddenly. Does any of us view a hundred years as a sudden amount of time? If you have a hundred years to prepare for something, do you think you can get it prepared before it happens? Okay. 
I get it that sometimes when you're having Thanksgiving dinner and you got a week to prepare, it gets a little bit daunting, okay? A month to prepare sometimes is even a little bit daunting to get the house cleaned and all that. If you got a hundred years, that's going to be the best Thanksgiving dinner ever, all right? Everything's prepared. Everything's ready. There's no dust or dirt or anything anywhere. You've been scrubbing literally with a toothbrush your entire house. You could have cleaned it 12 times, okay? You had 100 years to get it ready, right? People for 100 years, and we'll just use that as the, as the time frame. For 100 years, people were hearing Noah preach about the coming flood. Yet Jesus said it came on them out of the blue. Now, when this is described and you say, well, you know, where did I get that from? You know, Noah in Hebrews is described as a preacher of righteousness. Okay. So all you can assume by that is that he was preaching. Okay. During this time. You know, be, maybe he's going to the hardware store and he's picking up some nails and some wood. And they're like, Noah, what you building, man? I'm building a boat. Why are you doing that? What is a boat? Why are we saying that? Because God said it's going to rain and he's going to flood the entire world. For a hundred years, he's going back down to Ace Hardware and he's saying the same story and he's telling people, hey guys, we need to repent. Hey guys, you need to turn. Hey guys, if you want room on the boat, you better turn away. You better do what I say because this is what God has said. You need to listen to me. You need to do what God said. He's saving all these animals. Have you not seen all the giraffe going on the boat? It's getting real. You better... 100 years worth. And what they say, no, man, we didn't figure it up. We're happy where we're at. You know what? We're getting married. We're having fun. We're feasting and partying. We're enjoying ourselves. And God said, and just like that, the day came, they all died. I mean, that is pretty profound when you think about that. Why is Jesus telling us it here? Because he's sitting here saying, hey, guess what? One of these days, I'm going to come back. One of these days, I'm going to return to this earth. And when I do, I'm coming in judgment with fire and flames and destruction and judgment for the wicked with my armies and my hosts on my horse with all the lightning and the thunders and all the stuff that we've been describing. He says, one day I am doing that. And guess what? On the mass population, it is going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come as a surprise. To y'all, it better not. Because I'm sitting here telling you everything is going to happen before it gets there. But to everybody else... Recognize this fact. You don't even know when it's going to happen. I don't even know when it's going to happen. The angels don't even know when it's going to happen. Okay? It's not in any of their iPhone calendars. There are no reminders. There's nothing on there. It's going to happen one day, but one day it is going to happen. And when it does, it's going to be a shock to a lot of people. When the clouds start rolling back as it describes as a garment being ripped or as a scroll being rolled up, okay? And we're going to have to start singing this as, it as well with my soul, okay? But as it starts rolling back, as fire starts descending, as mountains start moving and melting and people are running around and sca- that is what he's describing. He said it's going to come on them like a thief in the night. It's going to come as a surprise, You say, how could it be a surprise? Because Jesus said that we are going to be bearing his witness to all nations up until that last day. And he says, and it will still come as a surprise. It will still come 
as a shock. In fact, it's probably even going to take a few of us by surprise, okay? We're going to be seeing that fig tree, and we're going to be seeing the leaves come out, and we're going to be noticing some things going some ways, and we're going to be going, okay, you know, well, I mean, is this what's happening? I mean, some stuff's going on. There's some weird things. It seems like it's matching up. I'm not sure. And then one day, we're going to be walking into Starbucks, and boom, a trumpet's going to sound, okay? So he says here, it's going to come as a shock, to the mass world of unrepentant, wicked unbelievers. He says, and you will be witnessing to them up until the last day. That's part of that whole no excuse thing that we find. Just like in Romans 1, he says, you are without excuse. Because even if I didn't send you my gospel to preach your condemnation, he says, you still should be able to look at the creation and the natural order of things and go, God does exist. And in reality, what their heart is doing is saying, I know God exists because there's no way this could happen, but I refuse to bow down to the authority of an almighty creator. Okay? So here he says it will come as a shock. It will come as a thief in the night in that phrase. He gives this kind of, you know, what has always been used as like the rapture moment. You know, somebody's standing here, somebody's taken, somebody's doing this, somebody's taken, okay? And there's like a whole movie series about that, I think. And, you know, you're walking along and all of a sudden all the cars are spitting off the road. And, uh, you know, we woke up one day and it's like there's only half the population. We got like a Thanos thing going on and Infinity Wars. You know, all of a sudden everything's gone, okay? Look, I just, I guarantee you. And I promise you, as Jesus has already described it for us, the way that the suddenness of this comes will not be a shock to us, okay? And number one, it's not going to be something like you're walking along and all of a sudden, boom, people turn to ash and you're gone. Or all of a sudden, boom, someone's gone. Like you're sitting in church and you wake up after you've fallen asleep in the sermon and half the people are gone. It's not going to be like that, I promise, okay? It's not going to work out that way. He's just giving the image that there are some that are going to be taken. There are some that are going to be called from the four corners of the earth by the angels of God. And there are some that are going to come up from the graves. There are some that are going to come up from the grinding. There's some that are going to come. There's some that are going to go with Jesus and be with him when he comes back. And there are some that are going to be left. What he means by that is, is there are some that are going to be left. that will ultimately be judged and will ultimately be sent to their destination. Okay. So don't let that phrase kind of get you onto this whole end times rapture thing, okay? What he's describing here is simply this, that not everybody is going with Jesus, all right? No, that's such a harsh thing to say, and that's such a phrase and such an ideology that most people just don't like to hear that. Why can't everybody go? Why doesn't everybody go? Why can't everybody be part of the family of God. Why can't everybody go with him? Why isn't the whole world redeemed? Why isn't all people from all places everywhere all going to go be with heaven? Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be happier? And all I can tell you is this. Take it up with God when you see him. Right. Talk to him about it. Sure. The fact that anyone is taken is pretty remarkable. Okay? Especially if you think about all the injustice, all the flagrant disobedience and backbiting and ugly words and everything that we've ever said about God and all of our actions and deeds and in our minds. To think that he would want any of us ugly, worthless people with him is miraculous enough.
So he says there that it will come like a thief in the night. He gives us kind of an, an example here where he says and is encouraging his believers, you need to be ready. Okay. Now, again, this is where you get into kind of a weird situation because there's a lot of people over the generations who have taken this kind of be prepared mentality and they've gotten really, really crazy with it, okay? Um, There has been a couple or more different groups who have been waiting, okay, on a hilltop saying, oh, I calculated it, I got the day, I know when, let's all go up to this hilltop and wait on the Lord because he's coming back and we want to be as close to him as we can possibly be and as you can see, didn't happen They're still there, and then they go back and say, oh, well, I was working on my slide ruler, and I came out with the wrong date, and it's actually a day, and, you know, so there's there's a little bit of, obviously, the people reading this didn't catch that one phrase where Jesus said, you're not going to know when it's going to happen. Like, you can't calculate it, all right? Stephen Hawking can't, like, make it work by algebra, all right? There's not a time you're going to be able to calculate. Jesus even said... You know when a fig tree starts leaving, putting its leaves out? You know summer is nigh, okay? He didn't say, when you see the fig tree multiplied by a thousand, boom, you got your day, okay? He said, just be prepared, watching, and waiting, and doing, okay? This is kind of the three words that we're going to use to kind of encapsulate the rest of this message. Jesus, as you see here, these people that he's speaking of, the kind of unbelievers in Noah's day, at that point he said, look what happened. They continue to do what they want to do, and right up to the point of destruction, there they were, continuing to live lives, no respect for God, no respect for his messenger, no respect for the message, okay? They were completely ignorant or ignoring, okay, what God had been telling them for a hundred years, okay? Compare that to what Christ is giving us here in his message to his disciples. He says, you should not be ignorant of this. This should not be a surprise to you. You should know when this is coming. And you say, well, but I thought you said you can't know when it's going to happen. He says, look, I'm telling you, all of these things that are going to happen are leading up to it. Number one, in the proximal interpretation, they're leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. When you see the armies, as he describes in Luke, when you just see the armies of the Gentiles surrounding Jerusalem, head to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation set up, head to the mountains. I'm giving you fair warning, okay? That was a four-year siege that went on. You had time. I know you. when you say these things, take notice and run, Okay? It shouldn't be surprising to you. You shouldn't get trapped in Jerusalem. You want to know why? Because I've told you when you see these things, head out. Get going. Get away from that place. Okay? If you believe in me, if you believe my words are true, if you trust me when I tell you things, then when I tell you this, you should not be caught off guard or surprised. Okay? That's kind of his message. Well, here he's giving us the same message for us, okay? For every generation that runs up to that last day, he's giving us this same message. This is the commandment that I am giving you. Do, wait, and prepare, okay? And those are the three words to kind of sum up the rest of the message. Do, wait, and prepare, all right? Not do, wait, but do, wait, and prepare, all right? Because what he's trying to give to his disciples is a big picture of everything that's going to happen from 70 AD to whenever Jesus returns. He says, and this is what I want my people to do. This is how I want them categorized and characterized. I want them to be doing, waiting, and preparing. 
Okay? He even says that in the example here of the servant. He says, notice how the servant is commanded to do something while the master is gone. And what should the master find when he gets back? The servant doing exactly what he was commanded to do. He says, and blessed will that servant be. I'll give him over, you know, control over my whole household. Okay? Because you're actually doing what I commanded you to do even in my absence. He said, but look at the unfaithful servant. The master goes away. What does he say? Eh, master's gone. Let's do whatever I want to do. Let's get drunk. Let's start beating people up. Let's live the way we want to live. Why? Because I don't believe my master's words. I don't trust my master. And ultimately, when he leaves, I don't feel like his authority is over me anymore. Peter puts it this way for us. And we're going to kind of circle around a section of Peter in chapter 3 and chapter 2. But Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 3 Verses 8 through 13 says this, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men have counted slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat." Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, which is sure and steadfast and never will go away, look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, that section of scripture is vastly important okay, for all of us. Vastly important. Because what you see here is, number one, He's giving kind of a glimpse at how time works for God. Now, some people will say, and I've kind of jokingly said it before, you know, oh, so one day to us is a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years for the Lord is just one day for us. And, you know, that's the mathematical equation there. So if we do the math, you know, really it's been 2000 years for us, but it's only been the day after tomorrow for the Lord since he left. Okay. So we've joked about that and said, you look, see, maybe he's planning to come back at the end of the week and we're just on Tuesday. Okay. Um, or maybe we're getting towards Wednesday on a hump day and we just hadn't gotten over the hump yet to get on towards when the Lord's going to come back. But all that being said is a thousand years being as one day and one day as a thousand years being, God's timing is different, okay? That's what that means. doesn't mean that he's necessarily oblivious to time. Obviously, God has inserted himself into time on multiple occasions. He acts in time. He works in time. He is above time and beyond time, obviously. But he also works within time and he's promised us things within time and he created time and so therefore he's obviously intimately involved with it but what he's saying is whereas you think it's been in this kind of message with peter it's been 60 years and you're going where's the lord you know he's obviously slack obviously he's delayed obviously his promises maybe they're not as true and steadfast as he said because here we are 30 years later he's died he hasn't come back thought it was the last days what are we doing here but Peter is writing to his congregations going, hey, look, remember, just remember this big principle about God. His timing is a little different than ours, okay? His Rolex works on a little bit of a 
different schedule, okay? He's not on the 365 Gregorian calendar, all right? He just operates a little bit different than us, you know? His wisdom is better than ours. His understanding is better than ours. We just accept that as a fact, okay? So here when he says, understand that timing is different from God, he is making the point, God's got this under control. God knows which day of the week he's going to come back on his calendar. We are to patiently wait, do, and prepare. Okay, that's what our message is. That's what we've been commanded to do. And he even says here, he says, look, you're going to see a day when he is going to come back. And he says it comes back at a thief, as a thief in the night. Okay, but this is how you know that that whole thief in the night phrase doesn't mean people are going to secretly be spirited away and everybody else is going to be left. Because he says it comes as a thief in the night with the sky being set on fire, okay? So like we said before, it's going to be fairly visible, okay? People are going to kind of see what's going on. It's not going to be this thing you wake up and the world continues on and like half the people are gone. You want to know why? Because the whole world's on fire, okay? So it's going to be very visible. I think everyone's going to know when this day happens. What Peter is encouraging his people, though, is he's saying, look, we're waiting on this day. We're looking forward to this day. God promised this day, and when it comes, it's going to be a day, okay? A day of days. And what we have hope in and what we rest on is the promise that we have a new heaven and a new earth that is promised to us, okay? And some people have taken that phrase and tried to riddle that out and figure out what the new heavens and new earth is. And some of them have tried to say that that's like the church now. And the only way I really combat that is that if that's the case, then why is Peter still looking for it when they're 30 years into the church? Obviously can't be that, okay? So this is what we have all hoped for and what Isaiah and the other prophets prophesied to Israel, which was there's going to come a day. God is going to burn away all the dross from this world. Everything we messed up in Genesis chapter 3, how we broke the universe and the world and everything in it, God is going to come back and he's going to clean house in the only way that it can be done, which is you burn it all down and you start from scratch, okay? So he says, I'm going to melt everything away, but I will reform and remake a new heaven and a new earth. In this new heaven and new earth will dwell righteousness, and righteousness only. No more sin, no more vanity, no more brokenness. As he describes in Isaiah, there'll be no more tears. Why? Because God is literally and personally going to wipe the tears away from your eyes. That God is going to be so intimately involved with us in this new heaven and new earth that we will dwell in a righteous place forever. Okay, that's the beauty of it. He doesn't say that we will dwell in heaven as we understand it forever. He says, no, I've got a new heaven and a new earth. And those heaven and earth is talking about heaven as in sky above and earth that we're dwelling on. Okay, so he says, you're going to be a part of this. You're going to be involved in this, this new place, this new place that's free from any kind of sin and fallen nature. This new place where only righteousness dwells. A place where God and the Trinity dwell again in proximity with man. Okay? And that's what he says we're hoping for. That's what we're looking for. And Jesus promised it to us. And we know his words are sure and steadfast and can't go away. So we know it's going to happen one day. So he says it won't come as a thief as a night to you. It will come as a thief as a night in the night to a lot of people. 
So he's saying that he's not slack. His promises are sure and steadfast. He is going to come back. He is going to do what he said he was going to do. But then what does Jesus tell us we should be doing in the interim? We are to be doing, we are to be waiting, and we are to be preparing. So look at the doing real quick. What is this first story he gives us? A master has entrusted a servant to provide meat to his household while he's gone. Basically what he's there is he's giving the provisions, he's doing the support of the household, okay? which means he's providing food, he's taking care of, he's being that good steward, the butler, whatever it is. He's being that guy that the master can pawn off the responsibilities of the household onto and trust that while I'm gone, my kids and my family aren't going to starve, the household's not going to fall apart. Why? Because I got my guy. He's taking care of things while I'm gone, okay? It is an activity. It's a doing. There's something to it. He didn't say sit back and just watch over everything. He said, no, you got to be doing stuff. You're providing meat to the household while I'm gone. It's an activity, okay? So he said the example that we have here is that the master has entrusted this to the servant, and what does the master expect to see when he returns? The servant doing what he's commanded. That's just obvious. I don't think any of us give tasks to our children, co-workers, friends, neighbors, whatever, and come back and go, no, I didn't really expect you to do that anyway. You know, I know I told you to pick up your shoes, but it was just all a joke. I didn't expect you to do it. I expected I would have to do it, and I'm perfectly happy with that, and this is just part of the nature of what we're doing. I don't think anybody's ever said that, okay? I know I have not said that. I know I have said multiple times, when I told you to clean up your room, that was my expectation that you would do it, okay? And I actually expected it the first time. Now, I might be stupid, but I still expected it to be done the first time, okay? So there's this expectation that when I tell you to do something, or in the servant's case, when I have entrusted you, when I have given you responsibility of the most precious things in my life, I have an expectation that you will serve, do, and watch over my precious things as if I was here and you were doing it right along with me. That's kind of what Jesus is giving the glimpse of. He says, I'm going away, guys. I'm going to leave. But what I'm leaving you with is my bride, my church. I'm leaving you with the most precious, valued possession that I have. You, who I have paid for, who I have given my body and my blood for. I am leaving you, okay, as in responsible members of the body of Christ who I've entrusted with this servant kind of position. It says, I'm entrusting you with this. While I'm gone, take care of my bride. What does the master expect to find us doing when he returns? Taking care of his bride. Taking care of his people. Taking care of the poor and the widow and the fatherless. The ones that are in his kingdom that he has entrusted us to take care of. Doing what he has commanded us to do. Remember when he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? And what are my commandments? Love me and love your neighbor. Well, that's doing. That's stuff we're going to be doing. So we're not just passively sitting around waiting for the Lord to come back one day going, oh, well, I guess when he gets here, he gets here. And when he does, then things can really pick up. No, he says, I want to find you doing. Go do. 
Go do what I have commanded you to do. Go live how I have commanded you to live. Go be active in the kingdom I have given to you while I am absent. And he gives us the example of the opposite. He says, woe to the servant who's not doing. Now, again, what is, what is really important for us to grab out of this is this. You notice that he gives the two examples. He's speaking to the Jews and he's speaking to the Jewish people primarily in this because that's who he has been really getting at this whole time. Okay? And what he's telling them here is the same message he's been doing since Matthew chapter 5 and really since Isaiah and every other prophet that's talked about Israel. You've got a group of people in Israel who do not believe in God, do not follow God, do not obey God, are not submissive to God. We see that going all the way back. Okay, We see, hey, let's go ahead and get out of Egypt because we're slaves. Lord, please come save us. Lord saves us. We're not a few miles down the road. We're already murmuring and complaining about this Lord who has just saved us. It's the difference in doing versus existing. They love to exist in the presence of the Almighty God. Why? Because he gives them stuff. I've established you as a nation. I've delivered you from bondage. I'm giving you water when you murmur. I'm giving you manna from heaven. I'm giving you a kingdom. I'm giving you my word. I'm giving you all these things. But there's a large portion of them that love to exist and suck up the blessings of God, but really, truly were not obedient to him as master. Okay? That's why he said, go forward and take the land. They said, nope, I don't think so. I've told you to do it. I know, but I think we know better than you do. He said, okay, we'll have fun wandering in the wilderness. These people here is the same thing. You've got these two different servants, and it's not that one was doing a better job at doing than the other. It's that one believed, feared, and was submissive to his master, and the other was most certainly not. And when the master went away, he went right back to how he normally did. When Moses went up on the mountain and God seemed to be absent from the children of Israel, what did they do? Go right back to their default. Let's set up a golden calf. Let's start worshiping some other God. Let's change back to where we were and how we were before. You get out a little bit further and start having some strife. Let's throw God to the wind and go back to Egypt because at least it was a little bit better there when we were in slavery. Okay, So there's this reaction within these Israelites that they wanted to go back to where they were, which is their natural place of being. Okay? Here is the same thing with these people. He says, you see the servant who is unfaithful. That's not that the unfaithful servant, or the, let's, let's rephrase that. That's not that the faithful servant did so many good works that he earned his favor with the master, okay? Or that he did so much good stuff he earned his favor with God, all right? That's not necessarily what he's implying there. The unfaithful servant is just being what he is, a wicked, unfaithful servant, all right? And the reason why you take it kind of that way is because of the phrase he uses to close it out. That servant will be cut apart and divided up with the hypocrites and he will be in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth which always is pointing to a eternal consequence. Okay, He does that with the Israelites over and over again. He's told them about that with the wedding feast. Take the one who doesn't have the right garments on, i.e. the ones that I have not prepared to be a part of this feast, but think they have an invitation because they are of the natural lineage of Abraham. Take him, take him out, throw him out, gnashing, weeping, of, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's just a phrase he constantly brings back up to reiterate where this person is going, okay? 
So here he's giving that same thing. There's a difference in the faithful servant and the unfaithful servant. It's not that this one was so good and so right and he knew what good stuff to do. It's just that by God's grace on his life, by the heart that God had given him, he had a faithfulness, a fear, and a submission to the master to do what the master told him to do. The other one didn't just not do what the master told him to do. The other one went to the lasciviousness of life and nature, okay, and the flesh, which is where he was the whole time, okay? While the master's around, I'm going to play it good because I want the master to give me stuff. When the master's gone, I'm going right back to where I came from, okay? The second phrase that we get into, so that's the doing part and what he's telling us, what we have seen in this, the doing is witnessing like he has commanded us to do. You're going to be my witness to all nations. You're going to bear the righteousness of God to all nations. You're going to rail against the ungodliness of this world. But more importantly, you are going to represent my love to all nations. Okay, and we made that point. More Christians are known today about what they are against than what they are for. That's the national average. Christians are more identified with what all they are against than what they are for. And do we realize that we are the only people in this world who are commanded by our nature, by our spirit, and more importantly by our God to love everyone? We're the only ones who have that unction. We're the only ones who have that commandment. There is no other religion, theology, or spiritual practice on this world that says you are commanded to self-sacrifice for your enemy. No one's given that. That should be the most radical, world-changing philosophy to show everyone in the world that we love them irregardless of how they love us. That's what we're about. We should be known for that. So we're witnessing, we're loving God. That's a doing. Because what does God say? How do you love me? Keep my commandments. What are keeping the commandments? Doing some stuff. Because one of them is that you're loving God. So you're doing active things like worship and praise, but you're also living a life of love for the Father. And in addition to that, you're loving your neighbor, which means you got to go give your enemy some water. you got to go take your neighbor some food. You're raking some leaves for your brother down the road. You are going and ba- baking a cake for a bunch. I mean, you're just, this is what you're doing. You're doing stuff. For people, that's the simple, maybe that's the simplification of the gospel message. Doing stuff for people, okay? Giving your time, your love, and your, and your abilities to people. That's what we're called to do. And then loving our neighbor, which we mentioned as well. So those three things, witnessing, loving God, loving our neighbor, that's the doing, okay? So then in the preparation, we're going to see if we can get through some of this. So the waiting in that, which I didn't grab, waiting is not sitting back twiddling your thumbs. The waiting and the doing actually go hand in hand, which is why I didn't split them apart completely. Waiting in the Greek is actually a patient endurance in expectation. Okay, You're expecting someone to come over, so you're waiting for them. But let me just ask you this question, because we're coming up on Thanksgiving. How many of us are going to have guests over for Thanksgiving? How many people are going to have guests over for Thanksgiving or be a guest over for Thanksgiving? Okay. Or have in the past. Let's just get everybody. All right. So let me ask you this. When you were waiting for your guests to come over, 
Were you just like sitting in the chair going, well, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. I guess they'll get here when they get here. No, what are you doing? You're like running around like crazy. You're cooking food. You're making sure the toilet's clean. You're doing all this stuff, aren't you? Right? I have never seen anyone waiting for guests to come over who were actually like waiting, waiting. Okay? They weren't sitting there watching TV. All right? They weren't taking a nap. They were doing stuff. Lots and lots of stuff. Okay? So when he says here, I want you to do and I want you to wait, those are not contrary terms. They're synonymous. Because in waiting, you're doing. You're preparing. You're doing. You're working. You're getting yourself ready in preparation, in expectation of someone coming over. That's what the waiting word here is used. Okay? That you're expecting someone to come. You're looking for it to happen. All right? So last we look, we look at preparing. This actually gets us over into chapter 25, which is really what I wanted to do. So verses 1 through 12, he says this. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Notice that we have kind of grown in our audience. He's now giving a parable about the kingdom of heaven again, which we talked about involves a lot more people than the Jews. Okay? And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom comes, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not be enough for us. You go, and rather sell and buy for yourselves." And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. That, again, is another very important phrase. Okay? And also, big picture showing that this is not just talking about some marriage. Okay? It's a little bit bigger marriage. So it's kind of grand grand marriage that he's talking about, okay? But in the first century, and I'll just kind of read to you kind of a, an idea about the marriage thing, because obviously we have different ideas about marriage and marriage feasts. We don't do this. It sounds like an awesome time. I really wish we did. It, it would make me get married again, because it's so cool. Um, the parable of the ten virgins, this is reading from like uh, Holman's uh, Christian Dictionary. The parable of the ten virgins is rich with explanation of the Jewish wedding. The wedding ceremony began with the bridegroom bringing home the bride from her parents' house to his parental home. The bridegroom, accompanied by his friends and amid singing and music, led a procession through the streets of the town to the bride's home. Along the way, friends who were ready and waiting with their lamps lit would join in the procession. Veiled and dressed in beautifully embroidered clothes and adorned with jewels, the bride, accompanied by her attendants, joined the bridegroom for the procession to his father's house. Isaiah 61 and 10 describes the bridegroom decked out with a garland and the bride adorned with jewels. This bride's beauty could be forever remembered. The bride and groom were considered king and queen for the week. Sometimes the groom even wore a gold crown. Once at the home, the bridal couple sat under a canopy amid the festivities of games and dancings, which lasted an entire week. Doesn't that sound like fun? Sometimes longer, guests praised the newly married couple. Songs of love for their couple graced the festival. Sumptuous meals and wine filled the home or banquet hall. Ample provisions for an elaborate feast were as essential. 
failure could bring a lawsuit. The bridal couple wore their wedding clothes throughout the week. Guests also wore their finery, which was sometimes supplied by wealthy families. Does that not sound like a lot of fun? Okay. But do you get the picture here of what's happening? The bridegroom is coming. The lamps and the virgins are waiting for the bridegroom to come through and pick him up on his way to his house. And then he gets his bride and they all go and they have this big festival marching into the parents' house. And then they feast and eat and have a lot of fun for a week or more. Okay. Now, two groups in this. Five wise, five foolish virgins. Okay. These are people waiting to be picked up by the bridegroom as he comes through. All right. Immediately on the surface, what you assume is going on here is that this is a parable about frugality and type A personality traits. Okay, That this on the surface is frugality and type A personality traits. But obviously that's not what Jesus is talking about, right? Jesus is not here like confirming the Boy Scout motto of always be prepared. That's not what he's doing. He's not like saying make sure you go to Costco's and you get the bulk order of oil for $5.99 because you never know when you're going to run out of oil and you're going to need it. That's not what he's talking about here. These two classify two groups of people. In this case, we're still talking about Jews, some of whom are wise in the sense that they believe that their bridegroom is coming and they are in it for the long haul. Okay? Versus the other group who don't really believe in the bridegroom, don't really care about his wedding, and ultimately are in it for the short game. They're in it for the instant gratification. They're in it for, I'll endure for a little bit as long as I've got something in return. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, if you wait too long, I'm going back to Egypt anyway. Do we get the correlation? There's those who are in it saying, no matter where you go, Lord, I will follow. Lead me through the wilderness. Lead me across Jordan. Lead me into the land that flows with milk and honey. I'll go no matter what. That would be Caleb and Joshua. I don't care if there's giants. I'll go. Just show me the way. You'll take care of it. I know you will. And not only that, they were prepared for it. They believed so much in what he had promised them. They said, I'm ready and I will strap on my sword and I will walk and I will go. I am ready to do what you have commanded me to do. And I don't care how long it takes me to get there. In fact, Caleb and Joshua had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You'd imagine by that time, even they would be going, you know what? I'm a little bit tired of all this. Can I not just die with these people? I'm tired of walking around. We have been around this mountain 400 times. I'm tired of it. Maybe that land of milk and honey is good, but I'm so tired. Just let me die. I've been hoping my shoes would wear out so maybe my feet would fall off. You're still keeping my shoes going. Like, I just, I can't. I'm just tired of all this. No. Caleb and Joshua were like, yeah, let's keep walking. Come on, guys. In fact, I bet they were the annoying ones who were like singing songs and stuff. And everybody's like tired and worn out. And Caleb and Joshua were like, nope, I got this. This is great. Let's keep going. Look at our shoes. They're still walking. Look at all this. Isn't this great? And they're like, oh, you're those incessantly happy people that we can't stand to be around. Ultimately, though, what's Joshua and Caleb's testimony? They were faithful, they were wise, and they endured and they made it to the other side. These unwise virgins are not just the ones that were not type A enough or didn't have a Costco membership. That's not what their issue is. Their issue is up ultimately in their hearts. They did not believe that the bridegroom was coming. They weren't even prepared for it. Look, they know how long this can last. Sometimes it would be 12 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, maybe the whole next day. They didn't know when they were coming. Why didn't they bring oil? Are they just that dumb? No, it's because they didn't care. 
They want an instant gratification. In fact, these are probably the ones that are sitting there saying, Lord, if you don't come quickly, don't even worry about coming at all. If you're not going to give me what I want now, then don't even worry about giving it to me, period. This has a lot of kind of implication on the sidebar for us when we're talking about prayer or expecting things or whatever. You know, sometimes we just got to buy bulk Costco and wait around to see what the Lord's going to do, okay? Because otherwise we get in a mentality of, well, you know, I prayed about that last night and this morning. Everything's not fixed. So obviously God doesn't hear me. Obviously God isn't wanting to be with me. Obviously this is not. And sometimes God's going, no, you need to sit there and you need to keep refilling that lamp. And you need to keep waiting and you need to keep watching. And in all of these things, I'm going to keep molding you, sanctifying you, growing you. But you got to stay faithful to me. These first group was not that case. The unwise ones were not that case. They were not in it to persevere. They were in it for the quick fix. And that's what the Jews were. These, these groups of Jews that were like this, that's what they were always there for. Lord, where's our water? You let us out here to die. Let's go back to Israel. Lord, where's our food? You let us out here to die. Let's go back to Egypt. Egypt is what I'm in. Let's go back to Egypt. At least in Egypt we had this. At least in Egypt we had that. He says, I want my people to be a people who are willing to persevere as long as I am here. As long as I am with you, as long as I am promising you, as long as I'm walking with you, my people need to be persevering and preparing for me to come. So that's the gist of it with what we are to be doing. It's not just that we are doing a lot of stuff in a short run and when God doesn't come back going, well, I mean, look, Lord, if you're not going to come, then just forget about it. Back before those sections of Peter chapter 3 that we read in the first 15 verses of that, of that section, we t- that he says the same thing. There's a lot of people in this day that are going, look, the Lord is not coming back, which is why Peter said, just remember, timing's different with God. Remember, trust, prepare, you know, that kind of a deal. We have to make sure that that's not in our hearts. Well, I ran really fast and really good. And look at all the good works I did for the first five years I was trusting in you. But now look. Now what, you, what are you doing? Now where is the benefit? I was expecting you to already have resolved this situation. I was expecting you to already have come back. I was expecting you to already have been here, done that, bought the t-shirt, and let's move on. And sometimes, much to our dismay, God is going, chill out. Bring, be prepared. Bring the oil. You may be in it for a long run. This may not be something that comes instantly. It may be something that comes five hours, five years, five decades down the road. But he says, my people should be prepared. So with us, how does that look? In Luke, he says in the same kind of verse of scripture, I know I'm running along, but I'm getting through this. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory? And when these things begin to come to pass, what does Luke command us to do? What does Jesus command us to do in Luke's account? When you see all these things, the signs, the warnings, all these things, when you see this come to pass, what does he say to do? Then look up. And lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. He says, you need to be preparing. You need to be looking. You need to be looking. Who's going to look up? Well, people that have been preparing going, hey, look, it's happening. 
Look up and see. Don't you see the lightning? Don't you see the scroll? Don't you see the angels? Don't you see all that stuff? Look. I'm looking up because I know he's coming back. Everybody else is going to have their heads down. They're actually looking for mountains to climb under because the wrath of the Lord's coming on them. So, you know, you get this picture where he's saying, prepare, be prepared. Be in expectation of my coming. Be waiting on me to come with the idea of going, yeah, I know the Lord's coming. I know he's coming back for me. I know my redemption is coming. I know my new heaven and earth is coming. Why? Because he promised it and his words don't pass away. And while I'm waiting and while I'm preparing and all of that, I am doing. And maybe that looks different for each one of us. Maybe there's different ways to do loving your neighbor. And we know that's the case because you're going to have neighborly situations that are different than mine. Maybe loving your enemies is different. Maybe you've got more enemies than mine. And maybe if that's the case, then we need to talk about No, I'm just kidding. But maybe you have more enemies. Okay, maybe you have less. Maybe loving God looks a little bit differently. We're all to keep his commandments, but how you keep his commandments in your life, in your job, in your social situation or whatever it may be, is going to look a little bit different. Maybe your expectation and your preparing looks a little bit different. We all go through different issues. Some people are struggling, struggling with cancer diagnosis, loss, death, car wrecks. There's a lot of things that people are struggling with differently that are going to call them to prepare their hearts and their minds differently differently but all of us who believe in jesus christ are looking for the same glorious day of redemption and that's sometimes hard i know as a kid like when i was going there, i was like i don't want the lord to come back you know then when am i going to get to play my xbox you know you get to this mindset of like what's eternity going to be like without tv i mean how how can you exist i mean i'm now as an adult going thank god that blippy will be dead Okay, when the day of the Lord comes, okay? Thank God that that's done with and I never have to watch another episode, okay? But in childhood, it's really hard to grasp that, okay? Um, But what you have to understand is that our expectations and our preparations are going to be different. We're going to be preparing in a different way. Maybe you need to physically look up every morning and go, Up, is he coming back yet? We all are going to be preparing by reading his word. We're all going to be preparing through prayer. We all need to be praying that God gives us a prepper's heart, okay? That we're looking for him in that way. And that in our lives, we're not ever so locked into the worldly things that God has placed here that we have taken for granted and that we have corrupted and that we have put more emphasis over him and only him. So may God bless us to kind of work on this.